Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. On this show, we dive deep into how you can use data to measure, manage, and optimize your health with the latest science and technology. This show is brought to you by Heads Up, which is our web and mobile app designed for individuals and healthcare professionals who need a precise way to measure and manage health data. Check us out at headsuphealth.com. If you've got comments, questions, or feedback on this show, shoot us an email, support at headsuphealth.com. We'd love to hear from you. And with that said, let's get into our next exciting episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. And today we have the brilliant Dr. Jason Saunders on here to educate us on all things related to hyperbaric therapy. And we'll probably delve into other complementary protocols and other functional medicine topics that work synergistically with hyperbaric. But first off, Dr. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Great to be here. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time and love to participate in all the conversation. You know, we see each other at all the events. Yes, we do. We go party together, (laughs) but we haven't done the podcast together. So we get to close the loop. Here we are. Yeah. I am incredibly intrigued by hyperbaric therapy. I had minimal exposure to it myself, personally. I've put some of my close family members through it pretty extensively. And it's starting to become more accessible to people, which is very exciting. There's a clinic that opened just a couple miles from my house. They have three chambers. That's all they do. And those things are running 24-7 nonstop, people coming in and out the door coming in for all kinds of things from athletic performance to wound healing to complex chronic conditions. The place is nonstop. The chambers are booked flat out. So there's demand for this type of therapy. But what I'm really hoping is that we can get into the how of the how of how the therapy works. And I've listened to your presentations at various conferences, and I know you're a subject matter expert here. So I'd love to just dive in and and unpack how it works and how powerful this can be for all kinds of different therapeutic use cases. But first, how did you get into it? I've heard a little of the origin story from your talk, but it'd be great if you shared that with the audience here, just so we can know how you got into this world. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, working as a chiropractor at the time, and I think like all people getting into the new endeavors, it's a personal story often is the case. And so my wife and I had just basically built our first practice. It was a home office. And we were basically going to run our office out of this house for a little while and then flip the house and move into another space. And so nights and weekends, I was remodeling the house. And during the day, we were treating patients, basically. And so it was like middle December. Oh, yeah. You know, I have ADD. I like to do it all. So doing, you know, bathrooms, kitchens, whatever. I was on the roof and we were I was putting a new roof on. And, you know, I also am glutton for punishment. So it's like, I I can't even do it with like power tools. I'm like literally like hammering shingles one at a time onto this roof. And it's the middle of December. So it's New Jersey. It's pretty cold. And I'm lugging up shingles, throwing them on the roof, lugging up shingles up and down a ladder. And finally, I, I throw a square of shingles down on the roof and I herniate a disc in my lower back. As a chiropractor, it's not good for business. And so here I am, I'm like on a frozen roof, basically lightning bolts going down my back into my foot. Good times. 
good times had by all. I don't even remember. Honestly, I don't even know how I got down, but somehow I got myself down, got off the roof before I went into like full spasm. And then it's a very chiropractic issue. My wife's a chiropractor. So, you know, we spent the next few days treating me. My background was exercise physiology and nutrition before all that. So I'm, I'm eating the right things. I'm doing the rehab. I'm getting adjusted. Uh, there was a woman in our office also at that time. She did acupuncture. So I'm getting acupuncture. I'm getting massage. I'm getting adjusted. I'm everything I know to do, to do, do right that I would have told any patient to do. And the back pain went away pretty quickly, but I was left with a drop foot in my right leg. And so I had nerve damage in my right foot and I couldn't use my right foot or basically the lower half of my right leg. And for 18 months that persisted. And so I started to get to a place where I thought, gee, you know, I think that's just it. I got the back pain under control, but I just can't get this nerve thing. I was at a show, just like most of the shows that we go to, just, you know, randomly for some continuing ed credits. And at the show, there was a huge vendor hall, like there often are. And there was a guy doing sessions in a chamber. I had no idea what it was. I had no expectation. It just looked interesting to me. So, you know, I jumped in to do a session, did a 20 minute session. My ears popped a few times on the way up and the way down. Didn't think anything of it. And about 20 minutes after I got out, I'm walking around the vendor hall. I started getting like pins and needles in my foot. And that was the first time I had felt my foot in like 18 months. From 20 minutes of therapy. From 20 minutes in this chamber. At first, I'm like, this must be a coincidence. There's nothing to do with that. But, you know, I was drawn to go back and talk to the guy, right? So, um, you know, I'm telling him my story now. He had no idea. Telling him my story. And he's like, well, of course, that's what this thing does. And I'm like, yeah, BS. You just want to sell me this machine. And they're so, not cheap. And they're not cheap. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he agreed. I came back a bunch of times. I did about eight hours worth of treatments over four days in like 20 to 30 minute increments. And At I the show? Them. At the show, at a four-day show. And I basically left with about 20% recovery in my foot. Damn. So I did buy a chamber. <laughs> and, you know, I just treated myself. I had no expectations to use it in practice. I wasn't going to use it on patients. I just wanted my leg back. So it took me a couple of weeks once I got home and I had full recovery. And at that point, I was a little, I was happy to have the effect that it had. But I was so disappointed that I felt like I had gotten so far in my career and like never even heard of this thing. By the way, this is like 17 years ago. So, you know, I'd never heard of it. No one ever told me to get one or use one when I had this disc injury. And here it is, is like the only thing that touched the nerve was this device. And so that's when I really started kind of thinking more like, wow, maybe this is underutilized and maybe we should think about ways we can start to implement it in the practice. And of course we did. And now years later, not only are we, you know, a fully functional hyperbaric clinic on top of everything else that we're doing, I think you know that I'm running around, I'm teaching a lot, I'm, I'm certifying people in hyperbaric, I help people open practices in hyperbaric because I really want to help get the accessibility to your point. Even now, 17 years later, it's still only in its infancy and really first starting to grow, but we're doing our best, Melissa and I, to, to really try to expand hyperbarics, you know, around the country. Awesome. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. Like most great endeavors, there's some personal story there. Yeah. Heads up included. Of course. So um, let's just back up. So for the audience listening, you, you may be familiar with, with this concept of a chamber, but could you break down for us, Jason, the actual, what it is at a layman's level, and then we'll, we'll go into a bit more of the uh, science. So I think the easiest way to explain this is right now, you and I are sitting here, obviously we're breathing. We need to breathe. Every, we think we are. We think we are. We hope we are. Yeah. We, we yeah. hope we're getting some oxygen out of this air that we yeah. breathe. Yeah. So there's an atmosphere around you and I, and that atmosphere has a pressure. 
And that pressure is what allows when we breathe, that's what actually allows us to pull the oxygen out of the atmosphere and absorb it into our body. We're all familiar with the idea that if we went to altitude, it gets harder to breathe. And a lot of people say, well, there's less oxygen at altitude and that's why. And in reality, there's less pressure of oxygen, but air is 21% oxygen no matter where you are on planet Earth. So you and I, you know, I'm at sea level right now. It's the, my percentage of oxygen is the same as yours, would be the same as Denver, the same on the top of Mount Everest. Air is always 21% oxygen. The difference is as you leave the Earth's surface and get away from sea level, you lose pressure. And as you lose pressure, the number of molecules of air you breathe in with each breath is less. Therefore, the pressure of that gas getting driven into your body is less. Hyperbaric is basically the opposite of that. So as opposed to leaving the Earth's surface and going above sea level, we're just mimicking below sea level pressures. And so we're creating an increased pressure gradient and pressure is what drives oxygen. And so as we increase the pressure, we increase the percentage of oxygen we can get into our body. And under normal circumstances, I think you know this, you know, if you put a pulse oximeter on your finger, as long as you have a healthy heart, healthy lungs, most of us will read about 98, 99% saturated, meaning there's like one or 2% more oxygen that you and I can get in our body under normal circumstances. But when you increase the atmospheric pressure or you temporarily increase pressure inside of a chamber, you could actually go far beyond that one or 2% and you can get 30%, 80%, 300%, 800%, 1200%. I mean, you could literally exponentially increase the amount of oxygen that you can drive into somebody's body once you change the pressure gradient. And that's what hyperbaric is all about. So if you had a pulse oximeter on your finger in the chamber, are you saying it would go above 100%? Pulse oximeters don't actually read quantity of oxygen. They're really only reading red blood cell saturation. Okay. So you could be saturated with carbon monoxide, which would kill you, and the pulse oximeter would still read 99 or 100%. So pulse oximeter reads how much gas is attached to a red blood cell. Hyperbaric is literally bypassing that entire mechanism. So we could fill, it'll fill all your red blood cells. Like it'll get you 100% saturated, but it can't actually measure because all the extra oxygen, so to speak, the extra oxygen that you're going to get in a chamber isn't actually bound to a red blood cell. It's literally dissolved into the fluids of your body, like the plasma of your blood, your lymphatic fluids, your cerebral spinal fluids. So it goes somewhere else that a pulse oximeter can't measure. I got you. So there's a chamber that you get into, and it's obviously able to create these conditions of higher pressure. Now, there's hard shell chambers, which is what you represent, I believe. There's also soft shell chambers, which are a little different. My understanding, Jason, is most of the scientific studies have been done on hard shell. Is that correct? And for people listening, can you help us understand the difference? Sure. So, I mean, the material is just the material. But in the U.S. specifically, let's say, soft chambers are capped at a certain pressure. So soft chambers can go to what we call 1.3 atmospheres, which is basically, let's say, 30% more 30%. pressure than what you're, you and I are getting right now. Gotcha. Hard chambers can go up to, in some cases, three atmospheres, so three times the amount of pressure. In some situations, six atmospheres, like in a diving chamber, so six times the amount of pressure of you know sea level. What I would say is that historically, and I think you know this too, right? Like when you read a study, it's also it's like brought to you by, paid for by, who's yep. funding this and where's it coming yep. from? So yes, the overwhelming majority of studies on hyperbaric have been done at higher pressure. 
But that's not necessarily because it's the only one that's effective. It's just because the funding or the direction of hyperbaric traditionally has been on higher pressure for very severe conditions. That's where hyperbaric is used, like I say, in a hospital setting. We do in our clinics, my clinics, we primarily use hard chambers. We do use some soft chambers, but we also help a lot of people get chambers in their home. Sometimes that's a hard chamber. Usually that's a soft chamber. What I would say is this, there's a range of pressure that affects us. Anything from above sea level through, let's say clinically up to three atmospheres. We use three atmospheres of pressure for things like gangrene, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, osteomyelitis, osteonecrosis, really severe conditions. So if we have a really severe condition, we use really high pressure. And if we have a less severe condition, we typically, I would say we could use less pressure to have that same effect. I think our job and what I try to teach people when we're certifying people in hyperbarics is to have that thought process where you say, listen, what's the patient's goal? What's the condition that we're working on? Or what's the health goal that we're trying to achieve? And ultimately, how much pressure is really necessary? Because there's also consequences at higher pressure. And so like a good American, just because some is good doesn't mean more is better. We have to find the right pressure and the right frequency for the right person based on you know what their needs or wants actually are. But we, we do use both. And I would say over the last three to five years, more and more studies are coming out, even at lower pressure, showing significant changes for people. I got you. So if you were working at 1.3 atmospheres, for example, yes. would it theoretically take longer to address a certain condition that would normally be treated at a higher pressure? As more research is coming out, are we starting to be able to answer that question a little better? Because there's obviously a huge difference in accessibility mm-hmm. and cost. Most people couldn't even get a hard chamber through the front door, and right. yet they need this as a means of survival. Mm-hmm. And so the softer ones are obviously accessible to more people, but obviously it's going to be, I understand it depends, right? You can't probably use the 1.3 for gangrene, right. but for longevity, for example, health optimization, for example, wound healing, where do you see the line between how far the soft shell chambers can come in versus hard shell, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that is where the research is heading right now. We just finished a project in our office, basically trying to answer that, or at least part of that question. And so as an example, landmark study on hyperbaric and stem cells would say that two atmospheres after about two months of treatment, you can see about an eight times increase in uh, mesenchymal stem cells and central nervous system stem cells. So very significant. Awesome. Somebody, Ken McLaughlin out of Wisconsin, did a study about a year and a half ago, and he basically replicated that exact same study, but he used 1.3. He didn't even use oxygen. So this is 1.3 air only. Okay. So basically the lowest setting you could use in a clinical environment. And he found in the same amount of sessions, roughly a a two and a half to three times increase. So what we can say is if you needed to get the maximum amount of stem cells, let's say in a month or two, Mm -hmm. higher pressure is definitely more important. But if you're not necessarily in a rush and you could utilize this thing over months and years or even decades, then a two and a half to three times increase is still very significant, especially if you did that, right? If you did a two months of treatment, you got eight times increase. And then over time, and then you, you stop. And then you stop. They just sort of fall off, right? Meanwhile, you got a little bump, like a three times increase, but you held that over months and years. Well, that's going to be much more meaningful, I think, long term. So 
The answer is we're working on defining that, but it looks like, yes, for a lot of things as part of, let's say, I can't tell you all the details of the study that we just finished because I haven't fully written it up yet, but as one example, inflammation, we found that we compared 1.3 to 2.0, okay? And we did it over basically five weeks of treatment, a month off, and then another five weeks of treatment. And what we found were the number of cytokines, like chemical messengers that are associated with inflammation, the amount of cytokines that were affected by saw or lower pressure were very similar, if not almost the exact same as the ones that were affected by higher pressure. The higher pressure had a few extra that were affected that the lower pressure didn't, but the overwhelming majority, it was a very similar profile of which cytokines were affected. The difference was magnitude. So higher pressure had a higher magnitude than the lower pressure. However, over time, the lower pressure started catching up. And so to your point, I do think in a lot of cases, when the pressure or the percentage of oxygen might be lower, as long as we have frequency and duration on our side, we'll probably achieve some similarities. And when something's a little bit more of an emergency or an acute case, or we need bigger effect in a shorter period of time, that higher pressure could be very meaningful. Just as a side note, in our office, we often do both. We often see somebody in a state that requires a little bit more attention. So we use higher pressure for some period of time to get them over some condition or some hump. And then many times we'll move them into a soft chamber at home so that they can continue that same kind of exactly for maintenance purposes. And I think that's probably big picture. If we had more clinics doing something like that and then setting people up in a home setup, I think that's going to be the best way to utilize the full range. That makes a lot of sense because you could go to a local center, for example, buy your 40 sessions, for example, get that initial acute like jumpstart the whole process, you know, to use a metaphor here, and then be able to then follow that up with home usage and then get the cumulative benefits of being able to do that over weeks and months and years and decades. Exactly. I think that would be, if I could play it out from forward for most, most patients, I think that's really the best way to utilize this concept. And what if you had the cash and you could just have the hard shell at home for weeks, months, years, and decades. And then you get to play and have a little bit more fun. But yeah, I mean, the key here is that not all the equipment that's offered out there in the world is safe, is mm-hmm. really what I'll say. The interest in hyperbaric has grown so much. You know, 17 years ago, people were like, hyperbolic, bariatric. What is this chamber you're talking about? Hyperbariatric? Still, I don't know. What the hell I still is hear these, talking you know, about? These yeah. But... Obviously, it's grown tremendously. And in the last three to five years, the market has grown in a way that, you know, new companies are coming out with equipment. The issue is this. As an example, the soft chambers we use are going to run between like $15,000 to $30,000. The hard chambers we use are like between $120,000 to $160,000. Now, great example. This just happened a couple months ago, and this isn't the only case of this, but there's a company that makes a hard chamber looks exactly like the hard chambers we use. And they're selling them to clinics, which they're illegally sold because these are medical devices. They're required to be um, FDA, approved. FDA approved. I mean, that's that's part of this story. And so they had a clinic and they were treating this guy. He was a paraplegic. Him and his wife were in the chamber together. The window completely ruptured. They decompressed from 2.8 atmospheres to the surface in seconds. The husband blew a lung and the wife, I think, blew both of her eardrums. 
So, you know, this isn't to be taken lightly. So could somebody do this at home? Yes. Does it require proper equipment? A hundred percent yes. And then does that also require different training? In other words, if somebody gets a soft chamber, puts it in their house, there should also be training. That training is nowhere near as intense, if you will, as if you had a hard chamber. But as long as you're getting the right equipment, as long as you're getting the right training, you know, it's reasonable to think that a lot of people that could afford those kinds of chambers often have staff or other people. Technicians coming by to to do do the work. Exactly. And that's the best case scenario for that type of scenario, that that type of chamber. Awesome, man. I got some questions I want to hit you with, but before we do that, can you just help us understand how it heals? Yeah. I've got more oxygen coming in. I've heard you explain this. You're pressing twice the oxygen now into the cells, and that somehow has a healing effect. What is that somehow? Yeah, so it's a great question. Basically, every cell in your body, except for your red blood cells, so red blood cells carry oxygen. So because they carry the oxygen, they don't actually use any oxygen. So their pathway for making energy is without a mitochondria, right? The mitochondria is the part of the cell that for most part, in most of our cells, makes the energy in our cell. So the mitochondria is necessary for making really high level amount of oxygen inside our cells. And red blood cells don't have mitochondria, so they don't have that process. Every other cell in your body has many mitochondria, depending on the cell type. As an example, fat cells don't need as much energy as brain cells. So fat cells have less mitochondria, let's say, than brain cells. But the only reason we actually breathe, and the only reason we breathe air to pull in oxygen, is ultimately to get oxygen to the mitochondria in order to make energy inside the cell. The amount of oxygen you can get into the mitochondria is basically the rate-limiting step to energy production. So the more oxygen you can drive into the mitochondria, kind of like a car engine, Right. Well, you know, if you put like a cold air intake on your car, you can get more power out of there, right? You put a turbo that recycles the air to drive more oxygen into the cylinder, you could make more power. You know, our cells are very similar. So the mitochondria is the engine. It needs fuel, right? NAD is basically our fuel and it needs oxygen to oxidize that fuel. And so the more oxygen you can drive into that cell, the more energy that cell can make. Now, more gas more, in the tank. More, yeah, exactly. So Now, just think about it like this, your body right now, if we're having this conversation, let's say, and let's just say, let's make believe you're learning a lot from what I'm saying, maybe you're driving, (laughs) maybe we're driving oxygen to your brain, right? So that you can understand what I'm saying. So your body will shunt blood and oxygen to the tissue that's working the hardest. God forbid, let's say there was a fire right in this room that I'm in, I would jump and run out of here, which means my body would then shunt blood flow to my legs to get me out of this room faster. And then let's say I got hungry, so I went to go eat. Now all that blood's gonna go to my gut so that I can start digesting that food properly. So even though you and I are both basically carrying as much blood and oxygen as we can, we don't have enough oxygen to do all the work we need to do. The body's always redirecting blood flow to different tissues based on what tissues need the oxygen in order to do the work that we're asking it to do. Under hyperbaric conditions, because we can drive so much extra oxygen into the body, it's the first time the body actually has a reservoir, some sort of surplus level of oxygen beyond the 100% saturation that we typically live at. And because of that, we can now do more work. Now, that might be multitasking. That might be 
increased performance, let's say in an, in an athlete, or that might be increased recovery and repair for tissue that's been damaged. So once we get that increased oxygen, it stimulates growth factors, it stimulates repair molecules, it stimulates telomeres, it stimulates stem cells, it reduces inflammation, it grows good blood vessels, all the things that we want for recovery, repair, and performance are basically stimulated through oxygen because oxygen plays that critical role in energy production. Have you seen any studies on telomere length? So that was also part of our study that we just finished. I was replicating a study that was done, I think it was 2019, and they saw about a 20% increase in telomere length after about three months of treatment. They 20%. also saw 20% increase. It's, it was actually one of the largest changes in telomere length for any intervention that I've ever wow. seen. Wow. So that was huge. They also found, I think, about a 14% decrease in cellular senescence in that same study. So, um, You know who did that study, Jason? Yeah, that was Shai Afradi and Amir Hannity out of Israel. Okay. 20%, man, because they consider telomere length as, as one indicator sure. of biological age. And we're all kind of chasing that magical elixir to help us preserve. That's a substantial... Yeah. Amount. So were you doing that when you were replicating your testing? Is that what you're saying? So what we did was, so to your point, that's one marker that I think everybody's pretty interested in. At the same time, to be honest, like we don't know. It's associated with aging. We think it's longevity, right. but nonetheless, it sounds like you were measuring that in your so we replicated were, we, experiment. Yeah. So what we did was we looked at telomere length, but we also looked at DNA methylation panels because I do think that probably... DNA methylation panels are going to be more indicative of cellular aging than telomeres alone or some sort of algorithm between the two of them, you know, is really what we're going to find. So I'm literally crunching those numbers as we speak in terms of the methylation. How are you measuring the two? What tests were you using specifically? So we used um, True Diagnostics for the um, methylation Methylation. panel. And then in their research algorithms, they have algorithms for measuring uh, telomeres based on that same I got you. So you got both basically through one yeah. test effectively. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. So can you share any of the preliminary data? So the inflammation I had already crunched. So that's why I was sharing that. I'm literally working, data. Yeah, exactly. I'm working through all the genes and all the methylation, you know, the CBG islands and everything. I'm literally doing that as we speak. So I can't speak to it yet. All I can tell you is this. This was very interesting. I thought, I told you that the cytokines were virtually the same. It was an order of magnitude different based on pressure, but the actual cytokine measurements were the same. What's interesting about the DNA panel so far is that the soft chambers had a definitive effect on certain genes. The higher pressure had a certain effect on certain genes, and there was almost no overlap whatsoever between the two. Wow. So So they were working on completely different genes. Completely different genes. Which getting the best of both. Right. So which ones they were and what does that mean yet? I don't know. That's That's where I'm at. But it's very interesting that in most situations, I would say what you lack in pressure, you could make up for in time. But there seems to be something in this, you know, in these mechanisms are different. You know, the epigenetics that it's going to be a little bit different of a different story. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So a couple of questions that came up as you were talking. So stacking. So you're talking a lot about the benefits in terms of uh, reducing inflammation and parasympathetic activation, I would imagine, to some level. Sure. Uh, You know, a lot of that stuff 
I would see, could you even like, could you juice the lemon a little further if you were stacking it? Like you can go to a lot of these recovery centers now mm-hmm. and you can get your cold plunge and you can get your HBOT and you can get your photobiomodulation. Yep. And so are you seeing any complementary biohacks that work synergistically with, I don't know if these have been necessarily quote unquote studied, but off the cuff, like what would you stack it with if you could wave your wand there? Yeah. I mean, I think that none of them have really been studied at any level. You know, it's one mm-hmm. thing to say, hey, photobiomodulation does this, 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 and this. PEMF does this, 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 and this. Hyperbaric does this, 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 and this. We really- what about cold? Same, right? They all have their mechanisms of action and, and their, you know, and their, their cellular claim to fame. Yep. But what happens when we start combining them, I'll say that we've seen tremendous, I think everybody knows there's greater synergy when we start combining things, but- I really haven't seen any studies looking at the combined effect, like real studies on that. But to your point, I think there are certain things that probably have a bigger impact synergistically than others. To me, a lot of times I'm looking through the lens, at least for a lot of people, through the lens of the mitochondria. I believe that, I'm sure most people would agree that to some extent, mitochondrial dysfunction or or lack of cellular energy and elevated levels of chronic inflammation are are two of the things that are really at the root of most chronic illness. So if we can combine different modalities that can reduce inflammation and improve cellular energy, we're going to be, that's going to be a big win. And actually you'll be at A4M, I imagine. Yeah. You're doing the pre-conference, aren't you? Are you doing that this year? I'm doing the pre-conference. Yeah. There's like a whole hyperbaric pre-conference there. Okay. So I'll get a ticket for that one then. Um, So you should come. That'll be fun. And then I'm speaking also separately on Saturday on like a multi-therapeutic approach to mitochondrial function. And a lot of this is that, is that how many different ways, if if you looked at the mitochondria as a factory of energy production, what are the raw materials that go in? Who are all the factory workers playing that job? And how do we get more of this end product of energy production? And so there are certain things I think that impact that more, like I think fasting and ketones have an amazing effect on the front end of that that pathway. Totally makes sense. NAD precursors or NAD IV, you know, those are all sort of raw materials getting dumped in. Yep. But CoQ10 plays a big role in that. Red light therapy plays a huge role in that. Oxygen, as I said earlier, is one of the main rate limiting steps to that energy production. So those are some of the things that we combine right out of the gate that have huge impacts. And what I'll talk about on that Saturday is showing those pathways of exactly where do some of these ingredients actually affect the mitochondria. Basically, rather than just by accident having a positive effect on these people, what are some of the things that we could know about them? And what are some of the tests that we can run on them? And how could we identify, here's 15 things that work on the mitochondria, but Dave, which ones do you need? And Jason, which ones do I need? And Steve, which ones do you need? You know, what's the right formula for you and I? And that's For me, that's where a lot of my effort and research is going into is developing those protocols as we, you and I have talked about with your software. Could we basically develop those protocols and are we able to create a mechanism to, number one, make meaningful protocols for people, number two, track the results and measure them? Well, we only somebody had created a platform where you could capture all this data. You just knew somebody that would do (laughs) Exactly. I'd love to study that. First of all, I want to gather a lot of efficacy data on just HBOT in general. I was showing you before we got on here different ways we can track it. 
But then in heads up, we can pull in other types of metrics. We can pull in heart rate variability. We can pull in diagnostic blood testing. We can pull in glucose markers, SpO2. So I think there's tons of areas that we could nerd out on. And if you're looking for data collection in the future, we should definitely explore that. But um, I'm sorry, Jason, I just have a list of questions, man. They're just (laughs) going to keep coming here because this is so exciting to me. This one's a little more on the um, esoteric side. I can handle that. In the world of yoga, we have this word prana. Okay. Which is when we breathe and we learn how to control our breath, we're taking in our life force. Prana, one source of prana is oxygen, which is why learning how to regulate breath is learning how to regulate life. You know, another source of prana is the sun. You know, another source of prana is our food and the food we choose to eat. Is it processed, fried, dead? Or is it fresh from the farmer's market, colorful and alive and bright? These are all things that can contribute. So if breath, breathing, learning how to regulate breath is is a source of life, basically, it stands to reason that when we're able to increase the amount of oxygen we can take in, we're we're essentially, we're taking in more, more life, if you could even call it that. And that you can start to now infer why hyperbaric in my opinion, is like one of these fountains of youth. It's just because we're taking in, you said it, you said the rate limiting step is the amount of oxygen that we're able to take in. And that's inhaled through our nose and our mouth from the air. So if you can go into a place where you can double that, (laughs) are we effectively starting to double the amount of life force that we're drawing in? There's a connection between how some Eastern philosophies think about life force they call it prana. Here we're calling it oxygen. You know, have you ever seen anyone use those in the same context? Yeah. I mean, I would say I look at this through a couple different lenses in there. One is most Americans, I'm sure most humans don't actually know how to breathe, right? They take shallow, frequent breaths. They probably, in some cases, under breathe as far as the amount mouth we're, breathe while we're sleeping, all kinds of different things that right, lead to shallow dysfunction. breaths, right? So we often are actually discarding too much carbon dioxide. We're not bringing in enough oxygen. There's layers of issues with the way that we breathe. So forget hyperbaric, just paying attention and learning how to breathe. 100%, completely agree. Enormous impact in our health and it's free. Yeah. So yeah. everyone needs to go do. read the book, uh, <laughs> breathe by James Nestor. If you're yes. listening and you want to know how to breathe and you know, want to learn all the ways you can screw up breathing, go read that book. Exactly. That's perfect. So that's like number one. Number two is in a lot of ways, I look at oxygen as a nutrient. I talk about this all the time, but Ooh, nice. I like that analogy. It's part of it's part of the required nourishment for your body. You need to eat healthy food right? You need to drink clean water and you need to get oxygen into your body. I promise all of those things are necessary. Now you can go weeks without eating. And I would say for a lot of people, they actually might even become healthier if they did that. I've done an eight day fast, <laughs> but, but I know people right. have gone way longer than that. Yeah. You can go days without water, right? But we really can't go very many minutes without breathing. So here's this nutrient that you need to replenish virtually every minute of every day just to break even, just to have the normal amount. And if you looked at any vitamin, let's just use a vitamin as an example, like vitamin C, if you don't get enough vitamin C, you get you become deficient. We call that scurvy, right? And so you wanna have at least the amount of vitamin C that you need to not express scurvy 
at the same time, you probably don't want to just like get the minimum required amount. You actually want the optimum range because vitamin C does a lot more in our body than just prevent scurvy. And so there's an optimum range of vitamin C. And then you might, let's say, catch a cold or God forbid, imagine some crazy virus took over the whole planet. You might think, or well, cancer even, uh, you, there's right. a lot of vitamin C applications. So all of a sudden, even though you're getting the right amount of vitamin C every day, there's periods in your life where you choose to megadose vitamin C because it has yeah. a different effect when you take it in large quantities. Yeah, all IV I, it sometimes if I'm right. getting run like down. High dose like vitamin that. C, exactly. Yeah. So oxygen's the same thing. You might be getting all the oxygen your body can typically bring in right now, normally. So you're getting kind of like the optimum range of oxygen on a normal day-to-day basis, especially if you actually know how to breathe properly. But periodically, whether you have an old injury or some traumatic event, or you're about to have surgery, or you just had surgery, you want to recover, or you got a concussion, or you're trying to improve your performance, or you have old injuries that you're trying to heal again, or whatever, there's a, you know dozens of different reasons that taking in an extra level of oxygen periodically because of the roles that oxygen plays in your body and because of how limited we are and how much we can carry under normal circumstances, this surplus of oxygen or this surplus of life force can drive increased healing, increased recovery, increased performance. And so I think that vitamin sort of comparison helps people to understand why would I do this periodically? Well, that's the reason. And not surprising that the Eastern traditions have been evangelizing proper breathing techniques at the core of their health philosophy for millennia. Now we are just kind of catching up now. And then once you get your good solid breathing techniques, then you stack in the hyperbaric, you know, you're starting to really kind of like get going there. Next question. So if someone wants to get a chamber at home, hard shell, soft shell, this is a sophisticated piece of machinery now. So if you want to get certified, you mentioned that term. Yeah. What kind of training is needed to know how to operate something like this? So really the amount of training, I would say, corresponds with what you're going to do with it. In other words, if you're just buying, let's say, a simple soft chamber and your goal is to use it on yourself, a couple hours of training to understand protocol, procedure, safety, et cetera, like that's more than enough. If you're going to be using a soft chamber and you plan on actually putting a lot of different people in, that's a different story. Or if you're going to use a hard chamber now with ranges of pressure, and you're going to put dozens, if not hundreds of different people in, now we're talking a different story because everyone's going to handle that pressure differently. Everyone's going to have a different protocol based on what they need, especially a different protocol based on what equipment you have. Medical, so, Even their medical condition now, that all has to be factored in for, for you as the, the operator of the machine. Correct. So... The standard training is actually, even in hyperbarics across the board, the standard training is 40 hours, which is usually basically like a four long days, four 10-hour day training. And you go through everything from the science, how does it work, why does it work, what does it do, through all the indications it might be good for, through all the contraindications you need to be aware of, through oxygen toxicity and what are the consequences of going to really high pressure, what could happen to people. And if that did happen, how do you keep them safe, you know, all those kinds of details are covered in big. And then obviously also protocols for how to start creating protocols for people based on what you're trying to accomplish. So a couple more here, Jason. A lot of us biohackers are interested in in heart rate variability. Yes. Arguably, if you were to boil it down, like if you could pick one biomarker to get a beat on how someone is doing, you know, that'd probably be it. And it's not an easy one to move the needle on. You can't hide. 
So are you seeing benefit? Obviously, I would imagine there's acute benefit. You do the chamber that night or that week, you're going to see a pop. Are you seeing cumulative benefit there? Have you seen any good research out there on impact on heart rate variability? Yeah, that's a good point. And I'll bring up a sort of a larger topic there too, because I think this is important, especially for people who track. So to answer that question, we see large impacts in the short term like you said, days of sessions certainly moves the needle. And I would say, as long as someone's pretty consistently using them, we'll see also a longer term trending in the right direction as far as heart ability goes. And that's very consistent, like almost without exception that I can even think of. Now, for somebody that tracks, let's say sleep is a great example. There's a couple of things we see. On the days where people do sessions, we usually see increased uh, REM, We usually see increased deep sleep time-wise. We typically see increased heart rate variability, but we also often see small but measurable increases in resting heart rate. And the problem, the reason I'm saying that, and there's a problem here, is that a lot of the tools that measure your sleep and then give you scores, their algorithms use resting heart rate heavy as part of that. Well, Aura's algorithm will penalize you significantly based on resting heart rate. Correct. More so than an increase in HRV and deep end rim. Correct. So your readiness score might go down, but all the other supporting variables have gone up with the exception of resting heart rate. So as long as people can be objective the way you just explained it, which is exactly the case, and that's not long-term, that's short-term. And I believe that the reason that that's happening is with the extra, you heal at night, right? All your growth factors, your growth hormone, your repair factors, those are all released while we're sleeping in parasympathetics. And so if you're increasing your heart rate variability and you're increasing your parasympathetics, and now you just dumped an increased amount of oxygen fuel for healing and recovery. Energy, life. That the body is using that fuel for repair. And so it's not like if you're resting heart rate 62, it's not like it's now 89. It might go to 64. You know what I'm saying? It's not that high, but because people see their readiness scores go down, they get nervous. They freak out. Right. I would say after about three to four weeks of use, heart rate, resting heart rate comes back down to normal. Meanwhile, heart rate variability, deep sleep and REM stay high, in which case those scores really improve. But sometimes I have to talk people off the ledge because they see that. Well, my readiness went down. It's not unlike when I go back up to Tahoe for a few weeks and I'm at six, 7,000 feet, right? It takes a few weeks for my heart rate to normalize. Absolutely. All right. So last question, Jason, we have a lot of practitioners listening to this that are on Heads Up, and many of them have brick and mortar clinics. Can you speak a little bit about the business model of bringing a chamber into the clinic and how that would work? Yeah, I mean, that's where I'd say for the last five years. Probably do a whole show on that, but like just if you're listening and you've got brick and mortar and, and this is something that you're thinking of adding to your services, can you say a few words on that? Yeah, I mean, what I've seen over the years is we used to help practitioners, let's say, get equipment. But like, you know, so many practitioners, there's so many pieces of equipment out there. You buy a piece of equipment, you don't really know how to use it or who should you, or what the protocols are. So you get it, you play with it a little bit, and then it sits in a room and it becomes a clothes hanger for, (laughs) you know. So what we really focused on, I'd say in the last handful of years has been how to develop the business model, because I don't really want people to get equipment in their office if they don't know how to use it. And I don't, I certainly don't want expensive coat hangers. And so building that business out, getting the right people trained, understanding the protocols, making sure you're, you're talking about packages of care, 
making sure that you're guiding your patients as what to expect and how many sessions are likely to be needed, just so that we're all basically getting the right expectation right from the get-go. Because I think a lot of people get nervous about, well, I don't know, 10 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours, 40 hours. That seems like a lot. I don't know if people will do it. Listen, it's a big investment. It's a big investment. It's a time investment and a dollar investment. And I promise you, people will do it. Just like anything else, if you're confident about it, and that's a lot about what we teach is like how to, what's necessary to become that confident about it. And what business models are we using to run successful offices? I would say 87% of the practices in 2022, 87% of the practices that bought one hard chamber had two, two chambers within six months. Nice. Meaning like it was clear, there was full. There's and, demand. This is, you know, this is cranking. Let's get another one in here. In 2023, that number is up to 92%. So I know that most people should just get two chambers right out of the gate. It's just not everybody's ready to do that. But if you're going to, especially if you're paying somebody to operate them, one person can operate one chamber, one person could operate two chambers. In fact, one person in my office, one person operates three chambers. So you're paying the same. Tripling the revenue, basically. You're amortizing the costs as well over over three. So it makes perfect sense to do it that way. And that's where you know, the business model becomes really successful. But we have entire training. We have training programs for the certification in hyperbaric itself, but we also have programs just for the business side to make sure that people are actually helping patients, obviously, is the number one goal, keeping them safe and having the right protocol. But it's okay that they're helping people and creating a great stream of revenue for their company. And we try to help with both. Fantastic, Jason. I know we're at the top of the hour here. Do you have a few more minutes or do you you have another call here you got to jump to? Uh, No, I have a few minutes if you have a few questions. Yeah. You know, the other thing that you shared with me is some of the ways that you're designing the protocols. And some of them on there were also related to IV therapies. When you're working with people, you're looking at this not just from the hyperbaric, you're looking at it from what's their goal coming into the funnel. Then how do I use a number of modalities? For example, what IV nutrients would I use with this condition? And then what hyperbaric protocol would come on here? So can you give us an example of maybe one or two protocols that are holistic from that point of view, just as an example? Everyone's so different. So I'm a huge proponent of, we have no cookie cutter answers to big problems, especially. There's an Uh, algorithm in there somewhere to be developed. And perhaps that's something. There's definitely an algorithm and it's it's in my brain and we're trying to get it out of my brain, but it's not like a one size fits all, right? So it's if this, then this, and then if this, then this, and if this, then that, yeah. right? So as an example, I mean, some people talk about everyone who goes into a chamber should take glutathione. Some people should, some people shouldn't. In other words, is glutathione bad? No, but does everybody need it? No. And is hyperbaric oxidative? Yes. Is oxidation dangerous? Sometimes. Can I take a patient who's sensitive to oxidation, put them at really high pressure and over-oxidize them? Yes. Could I take a patient that's sensitive to oxidation, give them glutathione and reduce that oxidative effect? Yes. If I'm reducing that oxidative effect, am I also blunting some of the benefit of hyperbaric? Yes. So there's no answer to that, right? It's like, what does this person need? If they can handle the oxidation, it's going to create a hormetic effect that they're going to benefit from. And by giving everybody glutathione, I'm going to reduce that hormetic effect. If they can't tolerate the hormetic effect, like it's too much oxidation, well, then buffering that with a little bit of glutathione would be great as a way to 
get other benefits of hyperbaric without pushing them too hard on the oxidation side of it, right? So I look through that lens for everything that we do and whether it's vitamin C or ozone or glutathione or a good methyl B12, there's so many amazing synergies with a lot of these IVs that we use. Not that we treat cancer in any way, shape or form, but we might have patients with cancer come to the office. Hyperbaric has a lot of benefits for these people. Glutathione could have benefits for these people. Ozone could have benefits for these people. High-dose vitamin C could have benefits for those people, but we don't do hyperbaric, ozone, IV, high-dose vitamin C and glutathione all on the same day. Here's what you got to do, Jason. You got to put the IV in the chamber and the rectal ozone, and you hit them with all three at once. You go in for a one-hour drip with the hyperbaric and and the ozone up your butt, and it's party time. Exactly. I digress. That's exactly what we do. It wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't make one inappropriate bad joke. So there you go. We're clear on that one. We're there. <laughs> so are you still in the business of providing the chambers or are you moving more into an education and services model? I mean, we do all of that. So for a business that already has chambers, let's say they just need help with certification and business, we do that. Mm-hmm. For someone that hasn't done any of it yet, we can do all of it, you know? So just depending on what people need, we still do all of those pieces. Okay. So if I'm a practitioner listening and I want to work with you on this, how would you recommend that that people reach out? Yeah. So, I mean, HBOT USA is our main company in that realm. So HBOTUSA.com is our website. We don't sell anything on that. It's literally education only, but how does it work? Why does it work? If I'm a business owner, what should I be thinking? If I'm a patient, what should I be thinking? If I'm an athlete, what should I be thinking? There's just a lot of good education on there, but you could email us through that site, which is basically support at HBOTUSA.com start asking us some questions and we can start guiding you down a road. But again, just depending, just like a patient, I don't have a single answer. Every practice, I don't have a single answer. Should you but do you could consult with the practice. Hey, I got right. space. I want to, I'm thinking of adding this. Can you help yeah. me out? Which chamber should I be using? Should I get one or two? Should I get a soft and a hard, two soft, one hard, two soft? You know, all those things, there's no singular answer. It's really like, who are you treating? What kind of practice do you have? What are the goals of the practice? What kind of clinic is it? What are we trying to accomplish? All those things play a role in those. So, And I would imagine it's the same for individual users who might want to have this in their home as well? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, this has been incredible, Jason. Thank you for taking time to share your amazing expertise. And I'll see you in a couple weeks at the conference. And I'll send you an invitation. Hopefully we've got dinner lined up a couple nights. Maybe uh, you and Melissa can join us one night. Is she coming as well? Yes. Okay. So we'll uh, send you guys an invite for dinner. Hopefully you can join. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, brother. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio. 